if you're going to stay with us for the adult Bible study time, uh, let me ask you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 11, and I announced this on Thursday night, staying true to my word here. I'm going to take a break, probably just, uh, I'm going to say a two-week break, because next week, Brother Bursma is going to be with us, and he's going to be preaching during the Bible study hour, then he's going to give us an update on his ministry in Papua. Uh, and then I'll preach for you next week. But uh, t- today, rather than go through Daniel chapter 11, we've actually reached a convenient stopping point to take just a short break. We've covered all the history from Daniel 11. What, what follows in Daniel 11 is all prophetic. And it actually fits pretty nicely with the topic we're going to discuss this morning. Uh, today, we're, we're going to address... Uh, several questions that I've received throughout the week, and I think a question that is kind of buzzing around the world right now, especially amongst Christians and Bible believers, uh, what do we do with this Israeli war? Uh, What is the proper attitude? What is the correct biblical posture for a Christian to be in, both mentally, emotionally, spiritually, towards the nation of Israel and towards this war as a whole. So that's I'm going to try to give you as many thoughts and scriptures on that as I can. We're obviously not going to be comprehensive about this because, guys, to study how God works with Israel, that is a multi-layered topic that takes weeks, yea, months to cover. Uh, but understanding how God works with Israel, it is integral to understanding the Bible. Without properly grasping how God interacts with them, you are going to struggle in many places of the Bible. And this is one example of it. Romans 11 and verse 25. Throughout this chapter, Paul is answering the question, if I can loosely paraphrase the question, is God finished with Israel? In the early church, that was a big question. Now we can see this Christian church emerging. Does this mean now that God is finished dealing with the nation of Israel, his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do they no longer apply? Are they only applicable through the spiritually born-again Christians, and now God has done with the nation, the physical heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And Romans 11 does a fantastic job of answering that. We'll probably circle back around to this later. But verse 25, Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits. All right, pause a moment. What's he saying? Please understand this. Very important. Paul in chapter 11 is speaking about nations. He's not speaking about individuals. Now, obviously, nations are made up of individuals, okay? But he's talking about how God works with people groups. Now, if you want evidence of that, look at verse 13. For I speak to you who? Gentiles. He didn't say I speak to you individual Christians. He didn't say I speak to you Romans. I speak to you Gentiles. And then he's going to make a comparison how God has worked with Israel, how God has worked with the Gentiles, and how he's doing both at one time in our current age, or dispensation if you'd like to use a bigger word. Now back to verse 25. He's he's saying to you Gentiles, I don't want you to be ignorant of how God's... Uh, what God's plan is with Israel, lest you start to think that you're more important than you really are. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits. 
Then he goes on to say, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. This verse tells us why Israel is in spiritual trouble. That's the name I'm giving to my lesson. Israel is in trouble. But I want to show you the root cause of it. The root cause of their political problems and the root cause of the wars that have been going on and the one that is currently happening is a spiritual problem. They have been in rebellion against God for centuries. And as a result of them rejecting the Son of God when He came, God has temporarily turned His back from the nation of Israel and is primarily reaching out to Gentiles. That's what Romans chapter 11 explains to us. It is a partial blindness because one day God will once again turn His focus back to the nation of Israel and they will become the primary target of God's ministry. And we are, sure enough, I think, seeing a slow shift back that way, where our attention and and time is being focused back to there. But notice that God does have a plan to deal with Israel. For a while, though, for a while, they're going to be blind. How do you blind a Jew? Now, some people will say, just put two, you know, five rand coins on their eyes, and that's how you blind. that's That's not how God does it. God doesn't send them a prophet. God doesn't send them a sign. Psalm 74, the nation of Israel as a group says, We see not our signs, neither is there any prophet. And no one among us knows how long. That's Psalm 74 verse 9. We see not our signs. If you see not, you're blind. How do you blind a Jew? Don't give him a sign, don't give him a prophet. And therefore, he doesn't quite understand how God is communicating to him or what God might be trying to teach him or say to him. But I want you to see that Israel is in trouble. We in the New Testament are well aware of it. We should not be ignorant of it. We should know why they have this temporary blindness. And we know that one day it will end, right? It's until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Where does it start? Let me just quickly give you the verses. You don't need to find them. In the Old Testament, do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come to Samuel, he's an old man at this point, and they say, give us a king to rule over us like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. Samuel, heartbroken, goes to the Lord, and the Lord tells him, Samuel, give the people what they've asked for, which, by the way, is one of the worst things God can do is give you just what you want. But then the Lord tells Samuel, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. They rejected God the Father. All right, now listen closely. About, what are we going to say, 1,100 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ shows up. God manifest in the flesh. 33 years of a perfect life later, He has been arrested, he's standing before the tribunal, he's being judged unfairly, mind you. But Pilate gives the angry Jewish mob a chance. What shall I do with your king? John 19, 15 says, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. We we don't want our Messiah. We want a Gentile king. 
God said, okay, you want Gentiles to rule over you? We can, we can arrange that. <laughs> and for 2,000 years, they've been dealing with it. They also said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Well, they asked for it. Now, I'm, I'm showing you where the problem came from. Israel is in trouble today, and it all goes back to them rejecting what God has offered. God offered himself. 1 Samuel 8, they rejected God the Father. John 19, they rejected God the Son. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches one of the best sermons ever in the New Testament. And the Jews are ready to kill him. Stephen wraps up his sermon by saying this, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Look here, they rejected God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. They've rejected him completely. And as a result of that, that is the spiritual root cause of all of their trouble. So I, I think it's important to lay that as a foundation for the rest of our lesson so that you know where all this came from. All right, let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. As you find that, perhaps a couple of you, I've heard like four phones go off. You guys grab your phones and shut those off while you're finding Isaiah chapter 40. And let's get verse number 1 and 2. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. I didn't intend to do this, but my outline for this lesson is actually alliterated. We're going to talk about the political trouble that they're in. And then we're going to talk about its prophetical significance. We're going to talk about prayer. And then we're going to talk about the, uh, the posture, the proper posture what, is, what should be our perspective on them? Isaiah 40 and verse 2. Now, we're talking politics, and I, I hope that doesn't cause too much controversy or trouble. I know that the church isn't the place typically you hear about politics, but let's be honest here. Uh, the Bible has plenty to say about politics, so we'll allow God's truth to uh, affect our thinking on this. Isaiah 40 verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. And cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished and that her iniquity is pardoned. What caused the warfare? Iniquity. Do you see the connection? Spiritual trouble caused political trouble. Her warfare is accomplished that her iniquity is pardoned for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, would any of you care to fly over to Jerusalem today, stand up and say, your warfare is accomplished. The war's over. Well, of course it's not. Now, prophetically speaking, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, we know that one day their fighting will be done when Jesus comes back. But until then, warfare is determined. Right? So when we talk about, oh, no, there's a war going on in Israel, we should, I'm not saying we rejoice in that, but we should expect it because it's part of what God has arranged to punish them for their continual rejection of God down through the centuries. Do you understand? I don't rejoice that they're suffering, but I understand why they're suffering. Moms and dads, can you help me here? When your children get out of line, you do punish them, right? All right. I had a couple weak amens, but we'll talk about that next Sunday night. I hope you punish them to some extent, to an appropriate extent. Do you rejoice to see their tears? Do you rejoice in that you have to punish them? No, but you still do it, 
right? We, we as a community should expect that if your children are out of line, there is going to be a punishment. There's going to be some sort of suffering. We don't rejoice in it, but we do expect it. Look at Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. Now, all along Israel's history, whenever they've experienced political trouble and warfare, things of that nature, what would be the answer to it? What is the antidote to fix the political trouble? Get right with God. Listen, get right with God, form an alliance with God. Yes. Go back to the covenant you made with God, reconfirm it, if you will, reaffirm it. But the wrong thing to do would be to try to make political alliances with the people attacking you and try to get in good with the Gentiles, Gentiles all around you. See if that doesn't ring true for what's going on because right now they're trying to establish peace in the Middle East without telling Israel to repent. Furthermore, might I be quick to say this isn't just about Israel. Hamas needs to repent. The Palestinians need to repent. The whole region needs to repent and turn to God. So when Jesus showed up, what was his message? When John the Baptist showed up, what was his message? Repent. The kingdom is at hand. We'll give you back the kingdom, but you got to get right with God first. Okay? But what Israel tried to do over and over to fix their problems was make an alliance with the Gentile nations around them. Give you a couple quick examples. Isaiah 28. Let's begin reading at verse 14. Isaiah 28, verse 14. Wherefore, hear ye the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge, a scourge is like a whip. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Israel, if I can give you the history behind this verse, this context, they were making an alliance with the Egyptians. They were also trying to make it with the Assyrians because they thought by making these alliances, then we will not be attacked by these other nations. We will get help from these Gentiles around us. So in the passage, he's saying, you're trying to make... You're trying to stave off hell, death and hell. And you think you've made an agreement to keep those things from coming into your land. All you've actually done is invited them into your land because you're trying to fix the problem without God. Verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Somebody tell me who that is. That's Jesus. God said, I'll tell you how to fix this problem. You don't go making your own deals with death and hell, with whatever Gentile nation. You, that's not, you make the deal. You sign up with the covenant, uh, make that covenant with, with this cornerstone. Verse 17, judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies and the water shall overflow the hiding place. So God says, I will punish you to expose just how bad this is. Verse 18, and your covenant with death shall be disannulled and your agreement with hell shall not stand when the overflowing scourge shall pass through and you shall be trodden down by it. For the time that it goeth, I'm sorry, from the time that it goeth forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over by day and by night. And it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. 
For the bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than that he can wrap himself in it. What's he saying? Your answer to the problem isn't big enough to solve the problem. But God's answer to the problem would fix it. But they rejected it when it showed up. So the overflowing scourge has been passing through. Look at chapter 30. Chapter 30. Let's begin reading at verse 1. We'll read somewhat quickly through this. Verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel but not of me, and that cover with a covering but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. So they rebelled against God. That's what brought the problem. And now they're trying to fix the problem by creating an alliance with other wicked people. Well, you're just adding to the problem. Verse 2, that walk to go down into Egypt. By the way, that's, you got Israel, you got the Gaza Strip, you got Egypt. That walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. For his princes were at Zoan and his ambassadors came to Hanes. And they were all ashamed of a people that could not profit them, nor be in help nor profit, but a shame and also a reproach. The burden of the beast of the south in the land of trouble and anguish from whence come the young and old lion, the viper and fiery flying serpent. Problems on the land, problems in the air. They're coming by land, air, and sea. They will carry their riches upon the shoulders of young asses and their treasures upon the bunches of camels to a people that shall not profit them. They load down the animals with money, taking it to these Gentile powers, in this case Egypt. Please, we want to hire the services of your army. Come and protect us. Rather than praying and asking God to do it. Verse 7, for the Egyptians shall help in vain. And to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this. Their strength is to sit still. Just wait. Let me come and take care of it. But they weren't willing to do that. Look at chapter 31 verse 1. Chapter 31 and verse 1. We could read half this chapter to support the point. Let me just give you verse 1. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many. And in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. So is Israel in political trouble? Big time. But their answer, and it continually has been, is to turn to more politics and trust more politicians. And it just won't work. Which, by the way, one day they're going to sit down at a table with the Antichrist and try to find peace. And they will actually find peace. They're going to sign a seven-year deal creating peace in the Middle East thinking, finally, we fixed our problem. All they've done is put a little band-aid on a broken leg. They haven't fixed anything at all. The prophets, do you see here? And, and guys, I've given you three places. We could give you 300 more, no less. Where the prophets condemn Israel for trying to fix their problems in their own strength and their own wisdom instead of going back to God. The prophets, listen, condemned the political movements of Israel. So for you and I today to stand and say, I do not agree with how Israel is politically handling what's going on. 
we are not doing anything wrong. You're not sinning against God because you are critical of the political decisions of the nation of Israel. I think sometimes we get a little nervous because we know that God has especially chosen the people of Israel to carry out a very long-term plan of bringing the Messiah into the world, giving us the Bible. They will be the chief nation on earth when Jesus comes back. We know that they are elect in that way. God has chosen them. Therefore, we are very, can I say, scared. Trepidation comes on us. And, ooh, I don't want to say anything critical or bad about them. But the prophets over and over again said, guys, what you're trying to do politically, completely wrong. You're doing it wrong. So don't, don't be afraid to take such a stand. We want to be honest on all counts. We want to be able to say, yes, they are still God's chosen people, and God still has a purpose for them. He's going to do some things with them. That doesn't mean I support all of their present-day decisions. It doesn't mean I think all of their political moves are right. Okay, so we're, we're allowed to be honest on both sides of that. Uh, look at Isaiah chapter 10. As a child of God, are you now chosen in Christ? Sure. When you willingly chose to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you became one of God's elect. Not because God chose you before the foundation of the world, arbitrarily, but because you decided to put your faith in Christ. And now you're part of God's plan. Now watch this. Does that mean as an individual Christian, all of your decisions, all the politics, you vote for, you're always right? Well, no, just because you're part of God's plan doesn't automatically justify every other decision you make in your life. We can still be critical of some of the other type of decisions that we make. Isaiah chapter 10, look with me please at verse number 5. I want you to see how God uses Gentile nations to punish Israel. We're spending a little extra time on the politics and then we're going to move to some other things and look there as well. So don't worry, we're not going to spend all day looking at politics. But Isaiah 10 and verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. Now, do you understand that this is written in about 725 B.C., right about there. Isaiah is preaching to a nation of Jews, Israelites, that are about to be attacked by the Assyrians. And God said, that Assyrian, he is a tool in my hand. He, he is the staff. The staff in their hand represents my indignation. He is the rod of mine anger. Later on in the chapter, you'll see in verse number 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith, or shall the saw. So there's a saw and an axe. The Assyrians were the tools that God was using to punish the nation of Israel. How many of you have read the book of Judges? Let me see your hands. Read the book of Judges? You know what the book of Judges is? The nation of Israel comes to God. They're there for a little while. While they have a good leader, the good leader dies. What do they do? They backslide, go away from God. What happens? God says, oh, Mr. Gentile king, come here. You rule over them for a few years and let them, let them see just how good it is to live by my law compared to living by Gentile law. And then they're oppressed, vexed, abused for decades. And finally, a judge rises up and says, guys, let's get back to God. They fight against the Gentiles. They get power back. And the book of Judges is up and down like that. God used Gentiles over and over again to punish the Jews. Therefore, it doesn't surprise me at all. I don't rejoice 
at all at what I've recently heard in the news. October the 7th will long live as a day of infamy in the history of the world. Horrible things that Hamas did. But I'm not so surprised that God allows. I'm not even saying God chose or made that happen. I'm just saying I'm not surprised that he allows such things to go on because Israel can be punished by Gentile nations. Look at verse 6. God said this, I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets to just mow them down in the streets. God said, I'm the one organizing that. But why? Because they deserved it. This is centuries worth of rebellion and God is now repaying them. Uh, look at Zechariah chapter 1. We must move quickly here, dear. Dear, oh dear, I'm losing time. Zechariah chapter 1. Get Matthew, come one book back, that's Malachi. Get one more book back, that's Zechariah chapter 1. You need to see this. Because yes, it is true that God will sometimes use a Gentile to punish his people. God even called Nebuchadnezzar, he said, he is my servant. Jeremiah 25, 9. Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. Not that Nebuchadnezzar was a worshiper of God or a saved man, nothing like that. He was accomplishing a particular purpose on God's behalf, punishing the people. But Gentiles can take it too far. All right? Zechariah 1, look at verse 15. God said here, I am very sore displeased with the heathen. The heathen is another word for Gentiles. I'm very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. So God said, I wanted the Gentiles to punish Israel X amount, but they took it to Z amount. They went way too far with that, and then God would come back and punish the Gentiles for going too far in their punishment on the Jews. And on, that's pretty much the story of the Old Testament, to be honest with you. Come to Daniel chapter 9. All right, so we can certainly see where Israel's problems are coming from. We should expect political problems. We can condemn their poor political choices. But we can also very easily condemn what these other nations are doing, these horrible atrocities. Let's not say that God has organized every particular of that. Maybe there's a punishment, but wow, these people are going quite too far. Daniel 9, look with me please at verse 26. Here's a prophetical passage. Daniel 9, 26, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. You guys remember studying this recently. That's Jesus at the cross. And then we move out into the future. And the people of the prince that shall come. The prince that shall come is the Antichrist. Okay? The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. They're going to ransack Jerusalem. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. I showed you when we went through it. There's going to be a massive amount of soldiers that flood into the area. And, watch the last part, unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. The political trouble of Israel is just getting started. I want you to see biblically, their warfare is not accomplished it's determined unto the end these things are going to happen. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. 
and there shall be a time of trouble. This is known as the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. This is going to be the worst time ever. Even worse than Noah's day. How does it get worse than that? Well, we, we have the description in another place. I'll show you now. Such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So some Jews will make it through this tribulation time. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Even in that tribulation time, that you've heard us talk about that often in church, there will be some people still preaching the gospel and turning people to righteousness. Even in that time, it'll cost them their life. But they'll do it. Verse 4, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the what? End. Unto the end, desolations are determined. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse in the near future. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. I believe we are seeing that now. So uh, if you would, turn your Bible to Zechariah again, chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Let me speak just briefly on the prophetical significance of the situation. All right, we've talked about the politics. We don't need to say that everything Israel does, every choice they make is right. We're allowed to condemn them when they uh, get out of line. But we know that it is determined they're going to have problems. But what this current war, does it say anything prophetically to us? Guys, every time Israel's gone to war... Christendom gets all excited and nervous. You go, oh, is this the end times? Are we there yet? There have been many, many times that it kind of looked like it was shaping up. This is one of those times. Is this prophetically significant? Maybe. Maybe. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, you get the same thing in all three places. There shall be wars and rumors of wars. What did Jesus say? These are the beginning of sorrows. So we're just getting started, right, if, if you hear about that. So don't, I, I wouldn't put a lot of weight into what we've already heard and seen. This is, this is very common in the Middle East. There's nothing particular unique about this war that would make you think prophecies being fulfilled. But Zechariah 14, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. All nations. Okay. You know when it will get prophetically significant? When the whole world comes against Jerusalem. Then, then, now, if that was happening, my ears would perk up. I'd buckle my seatbelt and wait for that trumpet to sound. Because <laughs> I, I would think the rapture could be happening right around the corner. But, but we're not there yet. All right? I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Verse 4, he talks about standing on the Mount of Olives. It's clearly the second coming of Jesus. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're seeing verse 2 in its entirety happen. <clears throat> but I will say that what we are hearing about is a precursor. We're seeing things like this happening, which can certainly lead to more atrocities like this, 
which could be in the very near future. So let me give you the advice that Jesus gives us on this. Be ye therefore ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man comes. Right? That's, that's the prophetical position of this. We certainly should be reminded that the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Now let's come to Psalm 122. We're going to talk about the proper way to pray for Israel. Many people will just make the statement, let's pray for Israel. And I've had it multiple times this week. Every time it's coming from a good place and people mean it well. And um, I have no problems with somebody saying that. But I think it's good that we examine that request, that prayer request a little deeper and find out what is the right way to pray for them. Should we, are we praying that they win the war? Are we praying that their warfare stops? Are, what exactly should we pray? What if they're in the wrong? I'm not saying they are. I'm not trying to make any political comment there. I'm just saying, what, what if they're doing something wrong? Should we still pray that they come out on top? Uh, it, it can be a layered conversation. So many people will grab one, Psalm 122 verse 6, and they'll, they'll use it independent of its context. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. All right, now, I'm not saying everybody that uses the verse uses it for this purpose, but... I do think, and I have seen it used this way, it almost turns into white witchcraft. It's like a, a lucky rabbit's foot. Let me just rub this verse. If I just pray for the peace of Jerusalem, then everything, I'm going to prosper. You see, it's a very selfish thing. They don't even know exactly what it means to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You've got to understand the context when David wrote this. The temple was standing. Israel was at its high point. Israel was in a state of peace. They had some enemies coming against them here and there, but David would constantly conquer them. So he's saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem because we're on God's side. Our kingdom is established on God's laws and God's words. And therefore, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem in that condition, their political peace, just their, their, the pe having general peace in their land makes, makes great sense. But then you get to the book of Jeremiah. Look at that. Jeremiah chapter 14. While you're finding that, <clears throat> let me remind you of what God told Abraham. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So again, the idea is, well, then let me be, let me be careful and let me even sometimes people abuse that and say, well, if I'm nice to a Jewish person, then God's going to bless me. So they are unconditionally nice to the Jews just so that God is nice to them. But they don't understand what is the proper way to bless a Jew? What is the proper prayer for Jerusalem? How do we pray right now today? David's day was one thing. But look in Jeremiah chapter 14 and let's see if we can apply Psalm 122.6 in this verse. Look with me here. Let's read in verses 1 and 2. So, uh, Jeremiah 14, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth. That's a death to the earth, a, a famine. Verse 2, Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languish. They are black unto the ground, and the cry of what? The cry of? Jerusalem has gone up. What are you supposed to pray for in Psalm 122.6? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? Okay, look with me at verse 10. Thus saith the Lord unto this people, they have loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet, therefore the Lord doth not accept them. He will now 
remember their iniquity and visit their sins. Then said the Lord unto me, pray not for this people for their good. Now, how do you work Psalm 122 verse 6 into that? (laughs) Sir, ma'am, you better rightly divide the Bible. (laughs) Otherwise, you have a contradiction. One verse says pray for its peace. The next verse says don't you dare. This is not a time of peace, it's a time of war. So you need to figure out in which context am I and then pray accordingly. What is the right way to be a blessing to the Jew or Jewish nation? That's what you have to consider. Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. So how how could we accomplish praying properly for the nation of Israel as a group in their current circumstance? Here's what I'm praying. Lord Jesus, please come quickly. (laughs) Even so, come Lord Jesus, because there's, Israel's not going to experience comfort. Their warfare is not going to be accomplished until they've been thoroughly punished and Jesus comes back. So my prayer is, Lord, speed it up. (laughs) Come back quickly, right? Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's that's how Jerusalem's going to get peace in the future. Now, in David's day, they could pray that in a different way, but today, that's how we would pray it. Let me show you what our primary prayer should be. Now, as a nation, Lord Jesus, come and fix the politics, fix the sin problem, etc. As individuals, what do we do? Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might have peace in the Middle East. Okay, now, some of you aren't reading your Bible. Look at Romans 10, verse 1. You're like, I knew it, I knew it. No. Romans 10, 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. God, please save individual Jews because now in this present day in which we live, now that Jesus has died on the cross, the Bible says I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek, God, it's the will of God, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, that all men be saved. So what are we praying for? God, in this time of horrible atrocities, war crimes, just uh, the grossness of, of, and the depravity of sin being manifested in the Middle East, what do we pray? Not just that Jews get saved, although please do. God, save Hamas. Save the Muslims. Save the Palestinians. Save them, God. Please embolden some Christian amongst them to stand up and in this horrible time be brave enough to preach the gospel. Just recently, the, the Palestinians blamed Israel for blowing up a hospital. And actually, and again, I'm not going to go deep into the nuts and bolts of it, but it looked like Hamas had a misfire that they, they tried to fire a rocket and accidentally hit one of their own hospitals. It was a Baptist hospital that was caring for orphans and widows and other cancer patients and so forth. There are believers in that area that did not evacuate, even though Israel said, get out. They're there and they're preaching the gospel. And if you want to pray in a profitable way, Pray that God uses those believers to stand strong. Look at Romans 11. We're going to finish up here. Romans 11 and verse 28. What is the proper posture 
for a biblical Christian towards the nation of Israel and towards the individual Jew in this time. Romans 11 verse 28. As concerning the gospel, Paul says, they, talking about Israel, they are enemies for your sakes. So if, you're, if we're having a conversation about the gospel, the Jew is against us. What do we do with our enemies? What did Jesus teach us to do? Pray for them and bless them. What's the, I will bless them that bless thee. What's the best way to bless them right now? Pray for them, give them the gospel. That's how you bless them. Even though he reviles us, we don't revile back. He, they revile, we bless. They blaspheme, we bless. All right, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, that is God chose the Jewish nation in the Old Testament. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sakes. The, fa- the father's is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are two things at one time. They are enemies and they are beloved. They are beloved enemies. Well, I hate to use the updated term. They're frenemies. <laughs> they are beloved enemies. We do not deny that God chose them. We don't forget that part of history, and we understand how it plays into the future. We're not ignorant of that. But we also understand at this present time, when it comes to the gospel and them being saved, just because God chose their forefathers does not automatically save every Jew alive today nor does it pardon or condone every political choice they're making today. They still are going to be held accountable to truth and righteousness and holiness. And the best thing we can do for them, friend, if you read on in this passage, verse 30, for as in times past have ye not believed God, yet now have obtained mercy through their unbelief. Why did God turn to the Gentiles? The Jews had unbelief. So now we are finding mercy from God because... They said no to Christ. In verse 31, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. That's the correct Christian attitude and posture toward the Jew. I want to bless them. I want to show mercy to them. I want to pray for them. To what end? That they might be saved. That's the right way to think about this. All right, let's all stand. Father, thank you for giving us instruction from your word, that you said that the scripture was given to instruct us in righteousness. And Lord, we do want to pray for what's going on in the Middle East. Lord, I know it's not right on our, on our front porch, it's not in our backyard, but Lord, it's happening. It gets our attention. Strengthen the believers that are in that region. God, help them to stand strong. Give them boldness to preach the gospel when and wherever they can. And Father, please, I don't care which side of the war we're dealing with, let them see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he really is. Lord, we do pray that you would come soon. We pray along with the Apostle John, even so, come Lord Jesus. Bless our service to come. Thank you today for allowing us to meet. In Jesus' name, amen.